This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Father Joseph Azizi, author of the 2020 book, Gurdjieff, Mysticism, Contemplation, and Exercises. Father Azizi is a priest in the Maronite Catholic Church, working chiefly in the Chancery. He is also an honorary associate at the University of Sydney. For 23 years, he was a practicing attorney for the Commonwealth of Australia, serving at one time as acting senior assistant director of publications. He has published academically in three areas, ancient history, litigation law, and now in religious studies, and has also written some music for use in the Maronite liturgy. In Gurdjieff, Mysticism, Contemplation, and Exercises, Azizi explores the mystical dimension of the Gurdjieff work and details the evolution of transformed contemplations in the later stages of Gurdjieff's teaching. Our conversation examines the meaning of the mystical in fourth-way practice, the use of transformed contemplations to metabolize the finer energies necessary to stabilize presence, the relationship of transformed contemplations to the prayer of the heart, and more. Father Joseph Azizi, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you. Nice to see you again, Stuart and Rob. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you on the show. And um, we will begin with our usual first question um, to uh, first-time guests on the show. And that is to invite you to cast your mind back to uh, childhood and youth and ask you if there are any moments during that period of your life that looking back on it, on those moments, um, you could say, ah, this pointed me in the direction that my later life um, career took. And in particular, of course, uh, that would be in relation to your book, uh, which we'll discuss uh, throughout, throughout this uh, show, Gurdjieff, Mysticism, Contemplation and Exercises. So, so were there any such uh, moments? And if so, tell us about them. The most important by far, I think I was three years old and it was coming into Christmas and we were at the old house in Rydalmere and my father and one of his cousins, who was a very, very nice young man, he was an ex exceptionally kind person, were putting up Christmas decorations and I asked them what the Christmas decorations were for. And then my father told me the story of Christmas. I can't remember too much of what he said to me, except he spoke about the baby Jesus being born. But I had a direct experience then of as if a window opened in the sky and a trinity. I didn't have that word then, but there were definitely three persons 
in that window from the sky looking down and I knew then that what my father was telling me was true and I knew then that there was a higher reality which to us appears as a trinity. It's concerned with this world and it is, as it were, watching us. Now, I'm 63, so that was about 60 years ago. Easily the most important event in my childhood. And it was only later that I discovered in the teaching of Gurdjieff this idea about the centres, the higher centres, and that in children, the centres are more closely connected together. The division of the centres is something which becomes more pronounced as we grow older. So that the sort of mystical experience which children have may well be unique to childhood, but it by no means implies that it's fantastic. It's just that in children, they are constructed in such a way that such a realisation is more possible for them. And I think it's the fact that my father and this cousin, whom, as I say, for me, he, he's just a loving man, were present, which may have made that what it was. Now, afterwards in childhood, there were certain intuitions of something very big, certain glimpses of something very big, but nothing quite like that. That is for me, and I'm still learning from it. The more I understand of my present experiences, the more I can see what was taking place then and what its significance for me is. Because it's not just, as it were, proving a doctrine about God or about the Holy Trinity or anything like that, although that, of course, is included there. But there was a higher feeling available too, a sense of the relationship between what you could call earth and heaven and the fact that heaven is watching the earth. And the gaze is not a, an ineffective gaze. There's something happening. So that as I speak about it, I become more aware that it is possible still to have the living effect of this within me. That's how I'd answer that question, Rob. Thank you. The, would you say that the later experiences, less intense as you portrayed them, were uh, 
were they different in nature, albeit less intense, or the, or um, of a kind with the the original experience at three? Well, there's both continuity and difference. I think that if one has an experience like that, afterwards, nothing that happens can be totally separated from it. It will always stand to it in some relation, Mm -hmm. even if it is a forgetting, because that is still there. I've forgotten something. Many years later, in fact, only recently, I had another experience which was connected with something which had happened to me in the presence of Mr. Aidy. And again, this showed me more. Now, it wasn't as powerful as the experience of a child. It wasn't of the same force. But it happened to an adult who by that time, his configuration was very different from that of the child. And so I've been able to draw more from that. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so just uh, for listeners um, uh, benefit, uh, Mr. Aidy that you referred to is, of course, your uh, fourth way teacher um, that you met, I guess, in your teens, if, if only telephonically, if I understand it right. Once. Not, I was 23, 1981. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. And 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 you worked with him for the better part of a decade, I believe. He died in 1989. Yes. Okay. So um, you've had an, uh, uh, according to the biographies of you that I've had the uh, fortune to look at, you've had, um, if any, if I suppose one might say, several careers. Um, I, I think it's fair to say. You studied law and uh, worked in, I guess, the Australian legal system. Mm. And you became a priest in the mm. Maronite um, um, Catholic Church. Mm. And you've done all these um, Gurdjieff, um, you, you've explored the Gurdjieffian work intensively. I guess alongside um, these things, is that is that correct? You could put it like that. Yes. Okay. So, so it's a real one of the things that that I find really interesting is the um, intersections between, for instance, your your legal career and training, and the Gurdjieffian work. That um, that certainly has its share of laws, right? Although not mm. quite the same as the uh, as the human legal system, or not, not at all the same. Not quite as arbitrary. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just wondering if it, uh, what points of intersection between those two aspects of your of your life and career as an adult. Um, 
uh, have struck you over 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 your career? Yeah, the thing about being a lawyer was that really I was like a square peg in a round hole. Hmm. It it didn't really accord with my essence capabilities. Now, I was a capable lawyer to a degree. Every lawyer makes mistakes, every lawyer. Um, I could illustrate that, but even the very best lawyers make sometimes really significant mistakes. I was by no means immune to that. But at that time, I was with Mr. Rady, and he helped me understand that it was part of my duty while working as a lawyer to be a good lawyer to work competently, work diligently, but not to be identified with the work of a lawyer. And that was the problem I faced. For several reasons, I felt that I had to do more than others in order to maintain my position. Well, I more than maintained my position. And although, as I say, I was a square peg trying to fit into a round hole, I did have some success. I was at one time acting as Senior Assistant Director of Public Prosecutions. And had I been ambitious in an ordinary way, I would have become permanent senior assistant director. Fortunately, the work saved me from that. Hmm. Because together with understanding that while I was a lawyer, I had to, I had a being obligation to discharge my duties faithfully and to play a role, still not to identify with it and not to allow the law to, as it were, swallow me alive. And while I was a lawyer, I decided to pursue ancient history more seriously. So while I was working as a prosecutor, I did my doctorate in ancient history at the University of Sydney in ancient Near Eastern history. And I learned a number of ancient languages. And I continued with the group. But I think that when it was time to let the law go, the Gurdjieff work helped me very much in being able to just surrender it and go on to the next thing. I worked as a solicitor for 23 years and it was very good to me. 
I was able to put a lot of money aside. I have quite a fair superannuation plan. Short of a an economic catastrophe, I'll never be indigent. I'm not wealthy, but as long as I don't waste money, I'll be comfortable. And that's all due to the law. It also gave me an acquaintance with a lot of practical issues, which otherwise I would never have had because left to myself, nothing very practical about this person. It was sort of like a training. So even though the square peg was trying to fit into a round hole, that was actually valuable for me because I couldn't or I didn't wish to just react from like and dislike. And I remember many times as a lawyer sitting down in front of a piece of legislation and thinking, I'd rather be anywhere but here. I'd love to be reading this, or I'd love to be listening to that, or doing this or that, and thinking, no, this is my being duty. This is not the sort of thing I delight in reading, but this is my being duty, and then working through it methodically. So, There was an ability, there was a necessity, I should say, to sacrifice something in order to achieve the goal of being a good prosecutor. And there were very many occasions where I'd have a brief, which is the case against a defendant. It might have all sorts of issues, all sorts of problems. And I'd say to myself, what, what Mr. Rady used to say, Mr. Rady used to say, clear your desk and say, all right, three hours. This is the desk. This is the material. I'm going to give it three methodical hours. Do that. And at the end of it, there is clarity. It might be that you don't prosecute. There might not be evidence there. And if you don't prosecute, it's a, it's a good prosecutor who knows when not to proceed. But very often it would be that there was an offence and that by having spent that time, I was able to see better what had happened, how it should be approached, <coughs> and how the interests of civil and criminal justice could be served. Well, that was something. But again, you can't just make that a whole of your life. There came a point where it was necessary to go further into the next thing. And when it came time to leave the law, I was able to do it. I was providentially helped by certain difficulties which arose within the office. But um, maybe that was fate. And so I was able to leave that and then go on to the next thing, which basically was the priesthood. Ah. So how did the priesthood come 
arise to be the next thing. It's a, it's interesting to contrast that with your ongoing active work with, uh, Mr. AD and his group. And one might say, well, that's sufficient. That's, that's, uh, um, there's your spiritual expression. So what was it in the priesthood that spoke to you? Yeah. When I was a child, I felt that I had a vocation to the priesthood. I felt that I would be. Now, then the changes came after Vatican II because we weren't attending the Maronite church. There was no Maronite church near us in those days. Mm. And um, something in me intensely not only disliked but distrusted the changes which came with Vatican II. And I lost any desire for the priesthood, at least consciously. And then as I was growing up, as I said, I became a lawyer. And then almost by accident, I was put in contact again with some strands in Catholicism, which were from before Vatican II. And that reawakened something. Now, I'm going to cut the story a little bit short because it's quite lengthy. But then I remained with Mr. Rady, and after his death, he had wanted me to work on the book, the book which was published as George Adie, a Gurdjieff pupil in Australia. When that book was done, it's as if as soon as the book was finished, the door to the priesthood opened to me. Hmm. By this time, I was quite interested in the priesthood. And I discharged that obligation to Mr. Rady and this door opened and I didn't really think about it very much at all. I walked through that door and I went to Lebanon, spent four years in Lebanon and came back to Australia a priest. And now I feel as if the square peg is finally in a square hole. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, that's a, a nice lead in for talking about your book, which is, um, I think, the primary subject of our conversation. And it's uh, the, the book, um, uh, Gurdjieff Mysticism, Contemplation and Exercises, recently published really struck both of us as an incredibly important contribution to the fourth way. I'd say it's the most important book published in, in the area in decades. And part of the reason that we say that is that if I were to characterize at least one aspect of the book, and I'm interested to see if you agree with this, it's really to bring the mystical into sharp relief in the fourth way. Because exactly, yeah. Because in a in a the fourth way tradition, in its very many, yeah, its, it's very many uh, uh, expressions, often is accused of not having a heart and being very intellectual, 
or being very will-driven. And yet, with a certain eye, it's clear that there's this mystical core that runs through it. And what I found really uh, compelling about your book is that you tune into that very clearly and then sort of draw out the threads and make the case for why this was not only always there from the beginning, but more importantly, became the threads that Gurdjieff himself really felt were the most important aspects of the tapestry that he focused on later in life. That's exactly correct. Yeah, so the question, I, I think the question I, I want to start the conversation with is, um, what does the word mystical mean to you? Yeah, very briefly, mysticism is the exploration of the consciousness of God, being aware of myself in relation to God not just thinking about myself in relation to God, but being conscious to, present in the presence of God. It's the experience I had when I was three years old. Mm. And now many people have tried to make mysticism very much broader than that but I think that although one can see that God is much broader and humanity is much broader mysticism itself should not be cheapened because if everything is mysticism then the path is unnecessary but this path of ascent is an absolutely extraordinary thing. And no one should be dissuaded from it by being told either that it doesn't exist or that we already have it before anything remarkable has been experienced. From the perspective of Gurdjieff, I can speak about it more precisely, but it will only mean something to people who not only know of Gurdjieff's ideas, but have had the great fortune to have lived this, which is that mysticism is really, or the mystical experience, is the experience of the higher intellectual center received by the higher emotional center and the lower centers. Because we all of us have higher centers and thus the potential of being conscious with myself, my subjective reality, and being conscious of objective reality. And in the mystical experience, Gurdjieff said, and I think he's quite correct, one receives impressions through the higher intellectual center. Those impressions 
with an extraordinarily powerful nature. And if the ordinary mind receives them, it can't cope with them. It's like the eyes trying to cope with a blinding flash of light. The eyes are blinded. The same too with the mind. The mind can receive so much light at once that it becomes blinded. Very, very occasionally it will happen that someone will receive an impression from the higher intellectual center and be able to attain it and be able to use it. But that requires some extraordinarily fortunate circumstances. Now, Bennett does actually give an extremely good example. Would you like me to speak about that? Because if I take this, it will take a few minutes to discuss this example. That, that's, that's fine. The mystical yeah. is, uh, is at the center of the focus of this show in gen as a general yeah. rule. So, so, so please, uh, I think the go, example go will be helpful. Okay. Before Bennett met Gurdjieff, but not long before Bennett met Gurdjieff, in about 1921, he was in Constantinople and he was a British intelligence officer. In fact, he was in charge of one of the two main British intelligence officers in Constantinople. And now Bennett was mathematically extremely capable. He had won the mathematics prize and a host of other prizes as well at his school, which was a English public school, which means it was an elite school, King's College, King's College, Wimbledon. And he'd won a scholarship to study mathematics at the University of Oxford. And he had had discussions with mathematicians and scientists from Cambridge University who were very impressed with his work. This is before the man is 24 years old. So he's a prodigy. And he was in Constantinople. He had just read a paper by Einstein on the luminiferous ether. Luminiferous, meaning light-bearing ether. It's to do with a theory that the there's an ether, which is a material substance, material substance which receives light. And Einstein apparently argued in this article that the theory was impossible because if the luminiferous ether was a material substance, then it had to be traveling in all directions at once and it had to be doing so at the speed of light. Now, Bennett was quite struck by this, and he says he was going back to his office, he was going to finish some work, and he was passing a particular hospital in Constantinople. He knew exactly where he was at this point. At that moment, he asked himself, geometrically, how could this be represented? Einstein saying it's impossible, but how could you geometrically represent a luminiferous ether which 
went in all directions at once at the speed of light. And he said, suddenly it occurred to him that if there were a fifth dimension, a dimension of time, and that in this fifth dimension, time was orthogonal to our time, then everything would be moving in all directions at once, and it would have to be at the speed of light because it's instantaneous. Further, he saw that if this were the case, then it meant that there are very many futures and that we have possibilities, at least theoretically, of changing our future. And he compared it to the circumstance of a person on a train. If there's a person sitting on a train, while they're on that train, they're heading in this particular direction. But maybe there's a junction where they can get out and change their direction. In other words, change their futures. And this immediately for him solved certain problems, philosophical problems that he'd been working on. And then having had that experience, he immediately had a vision. And in this vision, he saw the universe as a sphere. And this was the universe of sense perception, the sphere of sense perception. Inside the sphere, there was an increasing darkness, but outside the sphere, there was increasing light. And certain spirits were falling into the sphere from outside and falling towards the darkness. But other spirits were leaving the sphere and entering the light. And he saw that a free spirit could enter the sphere or leave it as they saw fit. And he saw this as being an objective vision of something about the nature of the world. Now, incidentally, Gurdjieff later confirmed this to him and said, yes, what you saw is accurate. But he asked him, what is the point if you can't live it? What is the point of knowing this if you can't voluntarily descend into the darkness, but then come out of it and go into the light? And I, I think there's a tremendous amount in what Bennett said there. First of all, he was present to himself. He knew exactly where he was. He knew exactly what he was doing. And this is my experience. There has to be some sort of self-awareness. I have to have, first of all, an objective awareness of my subjective reality and then when I am well grounded in that, when there's a harmony here, then I can open to the higher objective reality of the universe around me. But notice that Bennett could perceive this and make something of it because the ground had already been prepared. He was already a mathematics prodigy. 
he had extraordinary intellectual capacities. And so he was able to not only receive it, but also to understand something of it and articulate it. And yet even for him, he said it took 30 years before he could practically use what he had had in that revelation. So I don't think it's any mistake then that Bennett, when he met Gurdjieff, was able to receive from him what he did. And over the course of his life, learn to work so that the mind was enlightened, so that the feelings were disciplined, and that by coming to a sense of oneself, one could open to something beyond oneself, more objective, and make that journey and come back with something that one could pass on. Because I think that's, I think that's the thing about Gurdjieff's mysticism. He's not seeking the experience for the sake of the experience, but for the sake of changing being. And that also includes work with other people. I do have to begin with myself, but it's not enough to end with myself. So you would uh, contrast that to mystical pursuits where one goes into isolation and it's a an absorption away from the world. It, it seems like what you're describing is a mysticism that uh, both can, has absorption into something higher, but also then the ability to come back and relate that to the lower realm as well. But there's that's a bridge. Right. There's a bridge. That's that's right. We, we come back wealthier people with something to pass on. I, you read, and it's not at all uncommon to read about people who are exultant, that they went into a trance state, and while they were in a trance state, a goat ate their clothing and they had no idea. As Gurdjieff said, that is just sleep on a higher level. If anything, one should be more aware of, the, uh, of what is happening. Well, the, there's also the cases of people who have religious experiences and don't have the objective relationship to their own subjectivity so that something higher touches them to be sure there's a, an extraordinary experience, but then they project onto that with the subjectivity of their lower nature and consequently crystallize out religious ideas or uh, belief systems and things like that. And those very crystallizations almost preclude the possibility of coming back to that place. I, I think that can happen. I, I by no means um, disparage people who have had these experiences and don't know what to make of them. I, I'm just fortunate that I came across Gurdjieff so that I could have this. I think that 
what often happens with people like, for example, um, Swedenborg is that they actually have very powerful experiences. They receive impressions from maybe even higher intellectual center, but they don't know how to interpret it. And they identify with their own experiences. Um, that's one of the thing about Bennett. Bennett's not identifying with his own experience. He's not saying, I've had this moment of enlightenment and now I'm a teacher. On the contrary, Bennett is saying, I've had this moment of enlightenment and only now am I really a student because there's something to learn here. There's something to understand here. It's as if I've been given a telescope of far greater power than I would otherwise have had. Okay, I can't luxuriate now and say, I'm professor of astronomy. I have to use the telescope. If I'm gonna discharge my being duty, I use the telescope to see more, to learn more, to research more, to understand more. And then hopefully the people that come after me can achieve more. But the thing about someone like Bennett, which I think is different from a, a lot of the people who've had experiences, maybe even as exalted as Bennett's, is Bennett was able to show people how to then approach their own being reality. There, there's no question except he was a genuine teacher in that respect. Uh, so too Gurdjieff, so too many of those people. Um, there may have been nothing like um, Gurdjieff since maybe even the time of Jesus and the apostles, where so many people were shown how to help other people come to this third state, this self-awareness. And that's the point. I don't think that happens with Swedenborg. No offence to my friends in the Swedenborg um, New Church. They know that's my opinion. Um, it's not just the experience. It's the change in being which the experience facilitates that counts and then being able to help other people experience that change themselves. Well, so um, one of the interesting things about your book, and this is not um, uh, not something unique that you've brought um, in your in your book, is is your pointing to um, three different um, geographic and, if you will, religious areas or arenas in the world where where you identify Gurdjieff receiving impression food to help him along the path that you've just uh, alluded to. And one of those is, is Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and, and so uh, what I'm, what, what the question that's occurring to me now is um, given the, the description of mysticism that you started off with a little while ago, um, which is uh, theistic centered on God. I'm wondering if, and it's, if, if you see any necessary um, distinction uh, or fundamental distinction between the definition of mysticism that you were offering 
um, and uh, an understanding of mysticism that would arise in a non-theistic, excuse me, context like Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. Well, the question is to what extent is Tibetan Buddhism really non-theistic? I mean, in a doctrinal sense, you can distinguish it from Christianity, Judaism, Islam. But to what extent is Vajrayana really so very different? To some extent, from what I can see, even the guru in Tibetan Buddhism takes on certain divine features, mm-hmm. quasi-divine features. And then there's a whole system of bodhisattvas and deities, Buddhas. I'm not sure that that's the way to speak about Buddhism There's something much more essential, I feel. And in that respect, I think that all forms of Buddhism are closer to Christianity. I mean, Uspensky said there was no religion closer to Christianity than Buddhism. And yet it by no means had the God concept of Christianity. And he's looking at something which is deeper than what you might call the doctrinal scaffolding. Mm -hmm. If you go to Tibetan Buddhist meditation centers, and I've done that, you feel as if you're in a temple. That is no question. That's the feeling. Massive golden Buddhas, um, riots of colours and all that type of thing. Um, They make even the most floral Catholic mass look as grey as a Quaker meeting. Well, okay, <laughs> but, I, but point I, taken. I guess yeah, and so and so I guess I want to follow up by asking: um, Is your definition or your understanding of what is higher, that is, in the discussion you just you just offered us? Um, I, I think I'm hearing you say that at a certain level, non-doctrinal, obviously, as you pointed out. Um, that there is a um, something akin in these otherwise apparently quite different systems about the understanding of a um, a greater reality than human beings co- have commonly mm. come to understand 
and be touched by, even though I actually happen to be persuaded that many people actually are touched by by the higher at different times in their lives, but they simply don't know how to um, assimilate it in, in much the same way or for, for the same reasons that you were uh, describing earlier. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot in that, bro. But what is it and, and where is it? You know, Ruspensky mentions the Buddha with the sapphire eyes. And when you read that account, it's tremendously moving. You, you know that story from the book, New Model of the Universe, the Buddha with the sapphire eyes? No, I don't recall. No, I don't. It, it's, it's really extraordinary. That is esoteric Buddhism. And then Gurdjieff told a story and he, he appears to have meant it absolutely literally about being in Tibet and hearing an extraordinary music filling the valleys hmm. and not knowing where that come, came from. And then very much later finding Tibetan dancers who had very strange heads, headgear on. And this headgear was like antennas and they were picked up by a device. And that device collected the energy and produced the vibrations which Gurdjieff had heard in the valley. Gurdjieff, as I said, seems to have meant this absolutely literally. That would be an example of some sort of knowledge in Tibetan Buddhism beyond anything which has come down to us. Also, Gurdjieff said to Araj that in Tibet, what he found were monsters, meaning lopsided development. Hmm. And Gurdjieff wished to have balanced development. Now, I'm not saying that Gurdjieff wrote off Tibetan Buddhism. I'm not writing off Tibetan Buddhism. I'm just saying that he said he found a lot of that in Tibetan Buddhism. And I think the same could be true, really, of anything even today within Gurdjieff groups. I was, just th I was just thinking the same thing, actually. Yeah, yeah. I I've known people that uh, have been conducting some... Uh, there's one chap in a Gurdjieff group, he's conducting some extraordinary experiments and it was very tempting to join in the experiments, but that's not where my work is. Um, my work is for being, to, to acquire a being, to, for conscious development, in accordance with my conscious aim. And I, I couldn't do everything, so I had to say <laughs> None of us can. Yeah, I had to say to this chap, uh, look, I'm not interested in that. Uh, I, it, it, it is really quite intriguing, some of the things that 
people can do. But um, it's 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 like we want to uh, run before we can walk. No, we we need to walk first, it's, and then we might be able to run. I mean, this this distinction you're drawing reminds me of the conversations in Eastern traditions about cities or powers that there to be sure there are ways we can develop our attention in these organisms that can do phenomenal things. But my observation has been that the doing of those things doesn't in and of itself change being. Hmm. It, it's, 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 it's somewhat like if I came to you and said, um, you know, you're going to spend many years learning to play the violin. Well, you can play the violin, but that doesn't necessarily change your being. And, and, and that's what I find so interesting in what you're saying. And the most compelling thing about the fourth way practice when it is configured in the way that you've configured it as this balanced uh, effort that developing and harmonizing the organism to be in the world and then be a vehicle for higher impressions to come through is a very specific project that's different than being able to melt snow with your Dumo heat or uh, mm. be able to read minds and uh, uh, talk to angels and things like that. Not that those things are necessarily bad or good. They're just not this. Yeah. That's right. So, so no, go ahead. Uh, just before we leave the topic of the mystical, um, you know, I, I, when we've had this conversation with, um, other guests, um, I'm thinking of, a uh, a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, a Westerner, but, uh, was a, uh, uh, student of a Tibetan master and, uh, uh, ultimately taught on his behalf. He would often locate the mystical in learning to live in or dwell in the non-conceptual. And, Although I feel like there's a point of tangency with what you're saying, it's, it also feels like you're saying something more. That the non-conceptual is a gateway, but it's not necessarily uh, the location. Am I uh, understanding that correctly, or would you find that description of the mystical as something more uh, approachable? I think that the thing is that the mind has levels and what we call conceptual relates to certain perfectly valid, legitimate levels of the mind, but there are higher levels which are not conceptual, not using the word concept the same way. With access to those higher levels, it may be possible to, as it were, transform an impression from that level into something which can be shared on the lower level 
which will mean applying concepts. Okay. There are being states available where while I'm speaking with you or while you're speaking with me, we can be aware of something in ourselves which is higher than thought, meaning ordinary thought, higher than ordinary concepts. This is not needed all the time. But when it is needed, it's very good. And what we have to discover, because none of us have been with it long enough to tell, is how often and in what circumstances this free from thought state can coincide with using ordinary thought. But it is possible. It is possible to be in a state where there is a consciousness above and beyond any thought. And it can, as it were, intuit the thought which is coming and stop it and think in a different direction. It can mm. call up a different thought. And sometimes if a thought appears, it can actually catch that thought right in the middle. It's faster and it's more powerful than ordinary thought. But in order to have it available, a special, very fine energy has to be collected. When we were discussing this the other day, I spoke about a consolidation where mm -hmm. something could be retained. And Rob said, stabilization. I'm happy with either word. If I'm stable, I'm able to stand. And while I'm standing, this other thing is present. And it's not a thought, but it influences my thought. Call this non-conceptual, if you like. I approach it in Gurdjieff's terms because I think they're the simplest. There's a certain self-awareness. And while I have this self-awareness, something of a higher nature can be added. And in this state, the changes which I need to make, for example, struggle with a certain negative emotion can be made more effectively, mm -hmm. more permanently. So when you use a term like the being objective about our subjectivity, this is another way of saying that, that, that the quality of what you're describing is the objective presence to our subjective lived expression. Yes. And this, this level is not necessary for organic life on Earth. But if I wish to have a future after this life, a conscious future after this life, it is necessary.
it is necessary to have had it often enough and deeply enough so that something in me can survive. There seems to be an order to it. It seems to be that first of all, the body of feeling is consolidated or stabilized. And then the mental body, the body of the mind starts to consolidate or stabilize. Put like that, it's very simple, very practical, I think. I'd prefer to speak in terms of the state rather than the nature of the thought, because if I seek a particular type of thought, I'm casting about for an idea. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of Go ahead. But if I'm trying to change my, if I'm coming to a state, then the ideas, the thoughts, the concepts, the quality of mind I need will be present naturally. Yeah, I'm just going to jump in here to say that Stuart's and my teacher, Robert Daniel Ennis, used to use a phrase that I found very helpful. And he said that there was an, an aspect of mind senior to the usual thinking mind. And I think, it, I think you can configure that or understand that to be aligned with what you were just describing as, as, yeah. as I don't like the word location, <laughs> but a place, as it were, um, where the higher can penetrate and um, uh, feed that aspect of mind senior to thought. And then, um, I mean, you started off by pointing out that it is not helpful to critique concepts. Concepts are fine. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with them. We need them for certain things. And, and then they are in the way for other things. That seems to me to be also aligned with what you were just describing. Yes. And, and that's a very good formulation, senior. Yes, the, it's true. The other thing that uh, I hear you saying when we, you know, the way to talk about this, uh, we can use the term presence. Presence isn't conceptual. And uh, my sense in the, in my experience of it is that presence is almost substantial it has it has a an energetic quality and many of the transformed contemplations that you describe um, and kind of build upon in Gurdjieff's history often involve the direction of attention really out of the mind and into the body as a way to cultivate that presence and the mm -hmm. language the language that's used which is somewhat unique, not exclusively, but a characteristic of uh, Gurdjieff's work is that we're accumulating substances. But the lived experience of that is a sense of presence that isn't 
um, it isn't concepts. It isn't a thought. There's no thought. It's, it's a, it's a, a state. I think the word state is probably a better way of putting that, but it seems to create space. And there's a space of awareness around which then our interior processes become smaller in comparison to the bigness of the state and in such a way then the center of gravity of our experience begins to shift away from the mechanical and towards this presence that holds all of that. Yeah, I agree, Stuart. So, so I want to get into an aspect of the, of your book, Gurdjieff mysticism, contemplation and exercises that I found really interesting. And it's, it's not that you you are unique in bringing uh, this point out in the book, but you, um, it is a key theme of the book, which is that Gurdjieff changed his teachings over time. And um, it's not that he abjured what had come earlier. That's not what you're saying, and nor would I agree with that. But, but that there was a, a growth or maturation or development or all of those three things and possibly other words that could be used to describe a um, um, something living. That is to say, uh, many, many formulations in different traditions say that um, genuine teaching is has has the quality of being alive in that it is not rigidly it's not a skeleton it's flesh breathing living flesh mm. and it seems to me that your book um is um a long elaboration of that among other things so perhaps you could say something about about how you came to um understand that because it's not, as I say, it's not necessarily a, a widely appreciated perspective in the fourth way, it seems to me. Mm. Well, while we're with Mr. Rady, Mr. Rady used all of Gurdjieff's methods and the ideas from all periods of his teaching and including what Gurdjieff had said to Uspensky and was recorded in In Search of a Miraculous. And he also gave a very considerable weight to the exercises. And in particular, the collected state exercise. In addition, he made great use of the exercises in the third series. And I also remember that he used the atmosphere exercise several times. He also had kept the four ideals exercise in its pure form, though when he gave it, he adapted it. 
It was after his death that we were introduced to what we call the new work, where there were things missing. Some things were left out, other things were added. Certain concepts such as the importance of an aim were absolutely forbidden. Um, I remember mentioning that to Jim Wyckoff and Jim Wyckoff said to me, oh no, we don't think in terms of aim. He said, aim is too rigid. He said, but I might have an interest. And I, I, I still hear that said by people in that tradition. And there were all sorts of things that went with this. The exercises were no longer used. And this, this actually caused me some perturbation. And I discussed that with Jim Wyckoff. And Jim Wyckoff fudged. He said, oh, everybody does those exercises, but they don't. They had, in, they had replaced the authentic Gurdjieff exercises, which we were doing up until 1989, with new things which had come via Madame de Saltzman. I now understand better what she was attempting to do. I don't agree with it, but I understand it, and uh, I don't condemn it. But it was seeing the difference, and there were many more differences. I just want to dwell on the essence. Mm -hmm. It was seeing the differences that made me ask, what is the Gurdjieff work? What did Gurdjieff bring? And it was that that led me to reevaluate the whole of Gurdjieff's career, his ideas and his methods. And I now think that there's an extent to which a person must do that to get the maximum value from the Gurdjieff tradition, because one is trying to cooperate with the creation of one's own eye. It is irreducibly individual. You are unique. You are unique. I am unique. And we, each of us, to achieve our individual nature, must, as it were, work it out for ourselves. We're given tremendous help, absolutely essential help. Even someone naturally gifted like Bennett needed Gurdjieff's help. And he particularly mentioned how when he went back to Gurdjieff in 1948, Gurdjieff was able to show him exercises which gave possibilities he had never shown before. And that when he abandoned those exercises to work with the Latahan, he started to experience a certain willlessness, a lack of will and he had to go back to the Gurdjieff exercises. Mm -hmm. I found something the same with the new work. So I reevaluated the Gurdjieff work for myself. And what I came up with was this, that I think initially Gurdjieff did not wish to use contemplative exercises. 
And it's partly because what he was trying to do had never been done before to produce what he called a fourth way, which could be lived in the world, not only with the intensity of a monastic way of life, but also with more effectiveness in a shorter period of time. So it was more intense, it was concentrated. You knew better what you were doing. Whether you were in a monastery, an ashram, didn't matter. A techie, didn't matter. You would be in life, life would be your techie. And there you would achieve more than you ever could if you had gone away to the White Lodge or anything. Let me just jump in here and ask, ask on just this point. Do you think that, that this was something that Gurdjieff um, initiated himself? Or do you think that, that uh, I mean, because, you know, many people have spoken of Gurdjieff being tasked with going to the West, perhaps, and doing, doing this work. What, what, do, you have a, do you have a view on that? Not a, not a definitive view, no. What I am sure of is that Gurdjieff was producing something in a way it had never been produced before. Mm -hmm. And that it's not just a question of Gurdjieff going somewhere and learning something and then being given a task. I think something was done to Gurdjieff and he had to find ways of teaching people to do that for themselves. It's as if you went somewhere and they implanted something in you and then you had to teach people how to grow it yourself, themselves. Mm. So that imagine you went to a secret laboratory and they gave you steroids and made you super strong. Then you go out into the world and you've got to show people how to develop their strength, but you can't give them the super steroids. I think that's partly what went wrong with people like Uspensky. I think Gurdjieff tried to house them, as it were, and it was too much too fast. And so by, it took him until the end of his life, through his exercises, to find a way of compromise so that one could live in the world, but one still had to devote time to what's really the work of the ashram or the monastery, right. sitting quietly in contemplation. Because it's no part of working life to sit in your bedroom for half an hour working on the collected state exercise. <laughs> That's why I don't think Gurdjieff introduced it first. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm interested in, you know, you mentioned the new work and just add a little color around that. As I understand from the book, that's, that's the term given by the Gurdjieff Foundation and de Saltzman's work that particularly was uh, developed or introduced in the last 10 years of her life. And I guess the question I have then, based off of your looking at these distinctions, what about that 
is um, moves away from working in the world versus the original, more traditional Gurdjieff vision. You know, how do you see that? Because I'm interested in that distinction because that I think would help help illuminate the unique tismus uh, of Gurdjieff's uh, vision of how you take this presence into the world. Yeah, and, and there's a very interesting corollary of that, Stuart. I'm going to come to what you said, but first of all, this very interesting corollary. Gurdjieff was notorious for sending people away from him, for making it impossible for people to stay with him. Right. Whereas in the new work, they expect you to stay with the group until you're dead. Um, and I, I don't. I, I think there's. I think that's a sign that something's gone wrong. You shouldn't need the group forever. Um, you should be able eventually to do something your own in the world. After all, the group can never give you the experience of being without the group. And that's a necessary experience. Um, that, I mean, that was the making of Madame de Saltzman, for example, when he sent her away. Um, he didn't have Madame de Saltzman continually with him from Georgia through to Paris. She had a period of her own and she made something of her own. And then when she, she came back, good. He could work with her then at a higher level. And I think that um, there's been too much dependency on the group. Gurdjieff mm. did, did not want you dependent on the group. He did not want you dependent on him. He wanted, he wanted us to make efforts and to produce something for ourselves. And I, I do think that with the new work, particularly as we experienced it, after Mr. Rady's death, there was what we saw was a tendency to continually say to people, you know nothing, you have nothing, you understand nothing. And then um, continually be upsetting everything. Well, upsetting things is not an end in itself. If something is worthwhile, if something is valuable, why upset it? And also there is this awful hypocrisy. They would say, oh, we're, you're, you're so rigid. We want to we wanna upset that. We want to uh, challenge that. Don't be so rigid. But if you challenge where they were rigid, if you wanted to upset what they had that was established, good luck because they weren't going to accept it. Um, it's much harder to discern what is important, what is valuable, what is worthwhile, and to hold fast to that and then from there to work out to, to work out into the unknown. But just to say, oh, we're going to hoist sail and head out into unknown horizons. Uh, I remember once I reviewed a book by written by someone who's in the new work. 
and she was speaking about all the exciting things they'd done, how they'd put themselves on the line and all this type of stuff. And I commented in my review, and they did all this in the security of the USA. It's not as if they went out to Jordan to be hunting with hawks in the desert. If they'd done that, I might have been impressed. But going for a trip in the USA uh, into the country, no, uh, not the same thing at all. I I wouldn't like to uh, just turn this into a an endless criticism of the new work, but to an extent, it's a valuable thing to do because I think it is necessary to contrast the difference between the authentic Gurdjieff methods and those which are not. And what is authentically from Gurdjieff can be developed. Um, the work I do now with the exercises shows signs of development. Mm -hmm. The work Mr. Rady did shows signs of development. It's not a question of learning by heart and then repeating verbatim what Gurdjieff said. But to displace authentic Gurdjieff exercises with something which was experimental and does not come from a source as high as Gurdjieff, really, I... I think that is that is to be criticised. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I don't mind. I don't mind criticising it. I don't want to, as I say, I don't condemn Madame de Saltzman. I think I understand better now what she was trying to do, but I think she was wrong. So I think the um, the distinction is uh, useful. Just as I said, I I'm, I was interested in just it sheds light on some nuances that I don't think people necessarily uh, recognize uh, in their ordinary encounter. But I do, I do want to go back to another of the central theses in your uh, book that I, I found really compelling along these lines. And that was the, um, the argument that one of the source materials for some of the transformed contemplations that Gurdjieff uh, utilized were came from the prayer of the heart or the uh, Jesus prayer of the uh, Athenite tradition from the, the monasteries of Mount Athos. And uh, I, from what I can tell that that prayer also has resonances in the Sufi tradition as well. And, yeah. I'm the thing I'm interested in really understanding from you is that when I look at source material on the prayer of the heart, for instance, in the Sufi tradition, there's a very, very different flavor, uh, a kind of ecstatic flavor that has a different feel from the 
exercises that you describe in your book, it's not, I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, conclude that uh, that ecstatic uh, dimension isn't actually accessible through those exercises. And that's why I wanted to uh, ask you about that is to really kind yeah. of get your, how, how do you locate these descriptions of the exercises that you report from Gurdjieff, your own experience of the prayer of the heart in the Christian tradition, and what you've no doubt probably studied from the prayer of the heart and the zikr from the Sufi tradition. How do you see these things all aligned? Yeah. Um, first of all, this is not directly answering your question, but I think I, I should say it. I think the most important of all the Gurdjieff exercises is the four ideals. It's not the basic exercise. I think the basic exercises are the collected state exercise and the atmosphere exercise. They are first, but the really significant one, the really significant one is the four ideals. And as I mentioned in the book, he did give a sort of very heavily summarized or shortened, abbreviated version of it in the USA. It's mentioned by Frank Sinclair as well, where he only takes one ideal, which is Christ. So if people have a problem with Muhammad, Lama or Buddha, um, in the book, I also mention Christ. That is, I think, the most important of the exercise, exercises for reasons we can go into. Now, coming to the um, Hesychus tradition, the way it seems to me is that there is no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, except Gurdjieff was very, very well acquainted with the meditative and contemplative tradition of the East, meaning Tibet and India, possibly also China. I've never seen him linked with Japan, um, but certainly Tibet and India, possibly China. And with Central Asian Sufism, um, Persian Sufism, Turkish Sufism, no question and also with Athenite hesychasm. Now, Robin Amos published a story where he said that Gurdjieff told them after his death to go to Mount Athos. At first, I was skeptical. I, 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 I frankly could hardly believe it could be true. And the story as it was told to me made no sense. More fool me. I was wrong. Um, I've been given the evidence. Unfortunately, it's confidential, but it, there's no question. Robin Amos is correct. Gurdjieff did tell them to go to Mount Athos, and some of them went. But what happened was, even before I had that evidence and I'd been reading the Philokalia and I knew that Uspensky had a very great regard for the Philokalia, I realised that there were certain correspondences between the hesychastic methods and Gurdjieff's methods. And so for the reasons I give in the book, 
I think he took the prayer of the heart and some Hezekiah traditions as sort of templates for his own Ayesiriturastian contemplation. But he developed these. I don't think there's any question except he proved to be a master of adaptation and development. Now, what else is done on Mount Athos, we don't know. Um, there is some suggestive material, which I refer to in the book, and which I tried to pursue, but no one could help me. And I spoke to Orthodox priests. I spoke to people who've been at Mount Athos. It's not so easy to penetrate the arcana on Mount Athos. So whether these are based on that or not, I don't know. But I am certain that the basic fundamental exercises, which is the ones he put in the third series, were prepared by him on the template of the prayer of the heart. Then, after that, we have a series of other exercises from Virgil, many of which I've placed in the book. In the book, I put the exercises which had already been published, that is in the third series, in the transcript, and in reality of being. And I added the exercises from Mr. Rady, which would other, otherwise be lost. I didn't put in the exercises which came through Jane Heap or John Bennett, but each of them received some very powerful exercises from Gurdjieff. And altogether, what they show me is that Bennett's description of the exercises is probably the best available, that at the end of his life, Gurdjieff was showing methods of using the energies within the body to attract higher energies, to digest them and to assimilate them. So that you know how in, in Search for Miraculous, he speaks in terms of three types of food, ordinary food, air and impressions. You can add to these two other types of food which is our own emanations and even the emanations of other people. And in addition, even higher energies, even higher hydrogens, which come from a source above the earthly. And this is why I said before ideals exercise is so important. I don't I've been working on the four ideals exercise for 30 years or more. But until I had made something for myself with the collected state and the other exercises, I wasn't able to do much with the four ideals. <coughs> now, you asked about the ecstatic nature. I think that Part of the reason that Gurdjieff used Christian templates rather than Sufi templates is because the Christian templates are, as it were, 
more sober. Mm. With the Sufi ones, there is an overtly devotional aspect, maybe even, I'm not sure if this is quite the right word, an emotional aspect, which depends upon being able to do it in a group of dervishes or other Sufis. The prayer of the heart he found in Hesychasm wasn't like that. So we know there are some extraordinary things happen among the dervishes and the Sufis. Um, maybe what happens with the Mevlavi is the best known. But for that, you need a Mevlavi techie. You need the Mevlavi tradition. You need people who are instructed in the Mevlavi ways. You need someone to play the nay. You need all sorts of things. I think Gurdjieff was looking for something far simpler. And I don't think he was interested in the supernatural um, sort of dom domination over the body, which is associated with, for example, the Rafa'i dervishes. Yeah, the ability to walk on coals didn't interest Gurdjieff. He wanted something more internal. And I think he found that in the Christian tradition, and maybe because it was Christian and he was teaching in Europe, he felt it could be better adapted to the mentality of the people around him. So with someone like myself, I, I, can, I can see that. I, I've been to Sufi events and there's no doubt something happens there. I, I've been to Buddhist meditations and there's no doubt something happens there. But it's not my way. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's rather foreign to me um, in a way which I don't think is necessary. And again, it would be like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Better to fit the square peg into a square hole. And that's what, for me, Gurdjieff does. So I have one last question around that, which is uh, speaks to the... Uh, the Christian tradition, and that's the role of grace. And I guess the way I would configure that in, in relationship to these exercises is that when I read some of the material on the prayer of the heart from uh, both the kind of modern centering prayer movements and the Zikr, um, uh, there's the notion of relationship to the divine saying the name, really immersing yourself in uh, God's presence, but also waiting because at the connection and the opening isn't something that can be willed. And what's interesting to me is, of course, uh, at one level, Gurdjieff's work is all about will. But in a sense, it seems to me that in this case, the will is to get yourself to the door and to collect your state, but there is something that can't be forced. 
And that's where I would understand in a Christian tradition, the nature of grace would come in. So I'm, I'm interested in how you see that as both deeply immersed in the Christian tradition and in the fourth way tradition, where does grace figure into this uh, in transform contemplation? Mm. It's a very, it's a very interesting question. I've got no doubt whatsoever, except that if a Christian has been disillusioned, even partly, Gurdjieff's methods can assist them no doubt whatsoever. If they haven't been disillusioned, Gurdjieff's methods are of no value to them, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. That's an interesting statement. Can yeah. you expand on that? It would create contradictions. It would ah, create okay. um, doubts. Okay. Um, so that if I'm working with someone who has not been disillusioned and doesn't have a need for it. Um, I, I don't mention Gurdjieff at all. I don't do any meditation or contemplation with them. Um, I just bring myself and I've been helped by Gurdjieff. So that's enough. But where a person has found that they seek grace but lack grace, Gurdjieff can be very useful indeed. To an extent, it's impossible to explain it precisely. What you've said, Stuart, is pretty good. I wouldn't disagree at all. only to say there's still a mystery there. Mm. If you stay with the concept of grace within Christianity, it can start to become very murky and they speak about different types of grace, effectual grace and this type of thing. And they're trying to articulate something which I don't think can be articulated. You might as well say that the most important thing at all is life because without life, no possibilities. Because God is always sending his grace. It's always available for us. But a person who is sensing, who, who is aware of themselves is not grasping. A person who is aware of themselves is also aware that I am this and maybe also you could say I am that but still this and that. And no contradiction is actually experienced at that point. I think really the thing is to work with the exercises and see what we find. 
because I don't think any theology, and I've I've studied grace. I I I've made a point of doing that. I I don't think any theology has been able to really plumb this mystery. Um, I think even someone like Bennett. Uh, was unable to get beyond a certain point because the point can only be gone beyond in one's experience, in one's being. I don't know if that's at all a satisfactory response. Maybe you, you were looking for something more specific. But... No, I, I think it it, uh, it works I'm reminded of something our our own teacher Robert Innes would often describe about uh, uh, you know being struck by a lightning bolt. You know, he, you know he would he would kind of liken like you you cannot say when the lightning bolt's going to strike, you but can't. you can go to the top of the hill right. with a metal rod. Right. You can yeah you can you can find a lightning storm. <laughs> you can climb up to a high point. You can hold a rod, and in a sense with transformed contemplation, when I read the descriptions that uh, I think you, you quote Gurdjieff giving, and I think possibly even Mr. Aidy giving about not seeking after results, you know, don't, don't worry about getting something, but make, make the practice almost like an offering. Then we, we prepare ourselves and we increase the probability of a phase transition but we can never make it happen. We can never, it, it is just, it is the law that we can't, we can't go from there to there by action of will. All we can do is create conditions where the possibility is enhanced. Yeah. And, and at the same time, we can be shown enough to know that no effort is ever wasted. Right. Right. Exactly. So, so we have a faith. Yes. Yeah, I, I'd agree. That's, that's good. Yeah, I, I want to. Um, we're getting close to the end here, but I, but I want to um, offer an observation about um, Gertrude's work more generally, but specifically about the the perspective that you ha offer in uh, your book about it, and that is that um, you were saying earlier, talking earlier about uh, the, the monastery and how. Many people have pointed out that that to expect Westerners to go to a monastery would be number one impractical, and number two, probably not efficacious for a variety of reasons. But but it seems to me that um, the way that you write about it and have spoken about it in our conversation today is that these these uh, exercises that Gurdjieff offered that you are highlighting um, are ways to create a, um, <laughs> a transient monastery in our own lives. And, and, and the point I want to make about that is that, is that uh, perhaps uh, Gurdjieff um, may well have had a sense that, um, that the atomistic tendencies in the social life of the West would only increase after his death, as I as I would argue that they have done, and that 
such a focus on creating this this uh, this movable monastery, this transient monastery, is is a way to offer something that in uh, darker ages needed to be held uh, safely in um, in a, so- in a social context. D- does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. There's this very strange thing, which is that in the last year of his life, Gurdjieff was saying that the fourth way gives the best results when people can live in a fourth-way community, um, something like what he had at Fontainebleau. And he was having designs prepared by Clive Entwistle and Mr. Rady for his new school. Mm-hmm. Now, um, and he said something the same to Bennett. And um, Bennett had great success with what he did at Sherborne. And even particularly after Madame de Saltzman's death, the foundation groups have regular retreats. They go away for a weekend, a week, a fortnight, things like that. Um, in one, from one perspective, that runs directly counter to what Gurdjieff was saying on other occasions. So we can't be too doctrinaire about this type of thing. I still don't know where to draw the line. It's, um, it's always a question of balance. And, you know, there are places like the Two Rivers Farm Mrs. Staveley had. Um, they're almost like um, embedded communes. Mm-hmm. They they were almost um, they were a very significant presence in the town of Aurora. Uh, I don't they're not as large as they were when she was alive, but there were there were families that lived on the farm. Right. They might travel somewhere else to work, but they lived on the farm. Now I'm not saying they're wrong. Um, some of the best people I know come from the Two Rivers Farm. But it's impossible to set out a sort of formula when a community, what type of community. I mean, community is a very vague word. But um, people did nonetheless receive a great deal from Fontainebleau, and yet Gurdjieff closed it down. He felt it was going wrong. But at the end of his life, um, he had two very good architects prepare plans and um, he died before it could. He actually went out. He, he went to visit a property because <coughs> he took AD and Entwistle with him. And he was, a, by <coughs> Mr. A's count account, quite sincerely interested in it. But he died before it could come to pass. And then it's this a condition which only someone like Gurdjieff or Bennett could sustain. Who knows? It's interesting. And it's interesting, you know, the premise that life can provide the impressions. And, and, you know, my, my teacher always taught me probably the strongest thing that resonated with me was that if I had a 
sincere desire to awaken that the universe was lawfully bound to direct experiences to me that would be in response to that need and that I couldn't, that was the good news. The bad news was I couldn't pick and choose anymore. I couldn't push away experience because whatever came to me had to be embraced as the gift that was being given in response to my prayer. Yeah, this is something I wish to understand further. Um, I, I can't say I can say if that's true or false from my own knowledge, but <coughs> excuse me, it's something I would like to understand further. Very interesting, Stuart. Um, more than interesting, it's it's a very serious. It it is, and and I, I would say two things about it. One is, um, <coughs> if it's I, I don't know if it's uh, uh, ultimately true, but it's a mm. useful way to live because mm. then you make then you make life food because that's your expectation is that whatever you receive is food and that's you you in a sense by acting as if it becomes the reality. And that's one aspect. And the other aspect is, as I said, I was, the way I was taught was that it was, it was a lawful truth and it's like between those poles, it's hard to, uh, 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 know for certain, except that it's, it's been a useful way to live. Yeah, there, there is, there were real questions about fate and destiny. Obviously, Gurdjieff understood more than he passed on. <laughs> and maybe the thing is that <coughs> it's not something that can be passed on, that we have to discover for ourselves. But I, I feel there's something there anyway. Yeah. Well, this is, that's a, this is a, probably a perfect place to uh, draw the conversation to a close because we're, we're out of time, and that's a, a perfect note. So... Oh, there is one final question in your book. You mentioned another, a forthcoming uh, uh, book. Um, and can you tell us just a brief, just give us just a brief description of what that uh, um, book will be about for our listeners? The one on Bennett. Bennett. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, I today reached a very significant um milestone in that book uh, I've now got 10,000 good words of ah. the study of Bennett Dunn 10,000 is significant um, um, it's it's more than it's much it's more than 10 percent of the book and I, 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 I it's very strange when I finished the book Gurdjieff mysticism etc I had no intention of writing about Bennett. Um, I had something else in mind. And then one day it came to me, no, the book must be Bennett. And I, I won't go into it now, but such a tremendous amount has opened up for me as a result of it. I'm aiming for 2024 which will be the 50th anniversary of Bennett's death. Now, mm. I want to have it finished 
um, next year, 2022, so that it can be revised. Because with the exercises book, um, I wanted to get it out and I got it out even though there were some typos, some errors, things I omitted. Hopefully they can be corrected in the second edition. But with the Bennett book, it's not as um, important to get it out now. I'm aiming for 2024 and God willing, that will be worthy of Bennett because I don't think, I don't think very many people understand how really extraordinary Bennett was. Well, I look forward to it. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for okay. telling us about it. Yeah. Okay, gentlemen. Well, thanks very much. Thank you um, so much. It's thank been you. A, we a appreciate your appearing on the Mystical Positive with, with us. Pleasure. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Bye. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Father Joseph Azizi, author of the 2020 book, Gurdjieff, Mysticism, Contemplation, and Exercises. Father Azizi is a priest in the Maronite Catholic Church, working chiefly in the Chancery. He is also an honorary associate at the University of Sydney. For 23 years, he was a practicing attorney for the Commonwealth of Australia, serving at one time as Acting Senior Assistant Director of Publications. He has published academically in three areas, ancient history, litigation law, and now in religious studies, and has also written some music for the use in the Maronite liturgy. In Gurdjieff, Mysticism, Contemplation, and Exercises, Azizi explores the mystical dimension of the Gurdjieff work and details the evolution of transformed contemplations in the later stages of Gurdjieff's teaching. Our conversation today has examined, among other things, the meaning of the mystical in fourth-way practice, the use of transformed contemplations to metabolize the finer energies necessary to stabilize presence, the relationship of transformed contemplations to the prayer of the heart, and matters of grace. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussions of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.